I believe I'm correct in remembering that you need to turn to page 1073, 1073 in your pew Bibles if you are using that as we study John chapter 17. We are returning to this study and again I am reminded even as I prepare that it's difficult to continue to enter back in and then be away and enter back in so I trust that God is still using this study in our lives together as we grow in the understanding of what it is our Savior does for us, even now at his Father's right hand. We are returning to John 17, looking together at the beginning of the verses this morning. We're done sort of the introduction that we have done over the past several weeks. And you remember it all started with the verses in Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We saw in our study that this prayer was spoken aloud for the benefit of his disciples and all who would follow after him. It is the longest prayer that we have of Jesus and it is an intimate prayer of the Father and the Son in their intimate intimacy of their fellowship, uh, speaking to uh, Jesus, speaking to his Father. And we're given an invitation in listening and hearing it to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith that we might, which I think is the main purpose of the prayer, persevere to the end. We saw that this prayer was as well the clearest expression of the teaching of James where he tells us that the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is a prayer of the Son to the Father, the Father delighting in the Son and always hearing him, the prayer then effectual as to its purpose and intent that we for whom he prays would be kept by the power of God for salvation. As we stand before the Lord on that great day, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and made fit for our eternal home and glory, one of the expressions that will certainly we will know, if not here, as to the reason that we are there, all part of the work of Christ, is this, I have prayed for you, and to the Father for this one I have prayed and finally, we noted that this one who is praying for us is the person of Jesus, our Savior, who is fully God and fully man. Both natures are necessary for him to be our Savior. And these natures, as we studied, are perfectly united in one person, Jesus Christ. And they are united without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. In his humanity, we see him as a faithful, compassionate Savior who has understanding to our nature, having experienced all that we have experienced, and yet he lived and experienced it all without sin. But in his divinity, he is the one who is Savior with power and all the attributes of God, sustaining, as it were, his humanity, that his humanity might suffer under the wrath of God and die the punishment that we alone deserve. And all of this is for our great encouragement and for our comfort. To remind us as we return now to this study in John 17, 
There is a general division that pretty much has been accepted by all who study this passage. All of the commentators I have read, including Martin Lloyd-Jones and so many others, have, I think, rightly divided it. Most of our Bibles divide it this way, so it's very clear and very easy. There are three main sections to this prayer. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself to the Father, and that is where we are given this wonderful entrance into the communion and fellowship that exists within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples, those the Father had given to him during his ministry on the earth. He has a unique focus upon them in those verses because they are the ones who will take the word as Jesus ascends into heaven and continue the work of Jesus from heaven now by faithfully preaching and taking the word to the world. And then in verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all believers who will believe on Christ through their word and testimony. And that would include you and me, of course, but I don't want to mislead you and say that there's nothing in any of these sections, of course, that don't have to do with us. The emphasis in each one is very clear, but the whole of it is for us, and I pray that we'll see that even this morning. So this morning, it's the first section, John 17, 1 through 5, and we'll be a couple of sermons at least in this section, this morning being the first. Would you stand as you give your attention to God's word, John 17, verses 1 through 5. This, the first part of Jesus's high priestly prayer, and this is God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you for that great truth, this prayer spoken so long ago for the benefit of those disciples who first heard his voice speak to his father is a voice that we hear now by your spirit as these words have been read. Bless, Lord, we pray, your word to our hearing and growth. And to your glory, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, John, of course, is the author of this gospel. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he often referred to himself. And as that most beloved disciple, John became the author not only of the gospel of John that bears his name, but of three other general letters, that means they're not directed specifically to churches that we know, like Ephesus, Colossae, and Philippians, for instance, or Philippi. But they're general letters to be uh, sent out to all the churches that each church might receive great encouragement through them. He's also the author, as you know, of the book of Revelation. And if you look at those letters clearly, carefully, you can see that there are common themes, common ideas that are really unique to John. 
the doctrine of inspiration as we understand it uh, theologically is not a doctrine that tells us that God sort of put a spell on men as they wrote the word and they were just sort of sitting there as if in a trance writing down the words that God was mechanically dictating. We believe the doctrine of inspiration is such that the Holy Spirit, in working through these men, their personalities, their ideas, their thoughts, whatever, so worked in their lives that the very things that they wrote were the very word of God as he intended it. And so we expect to see commonalities, features in the letters that are common to each one that are generally, you know, consistent with the character of the person as we see him through his writing. That's no less true of John. John is very much focused on some of these ideas that we see in the verses that we've just read. In fact, in his first letter, you don't need to turn to it, I'll read it for you, but give your attention to 1 John 1. In the first five verses or four verses, this is what he writes. And I want you to listen to the the similarities that we've just read in John 17 in these verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. He's talking about the person of Jesus concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. It's a very theme that we just read in these verses, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us in the Son. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, if you know more about just the Gospel of John, you can see even more similarities. But certainly, even in this prayer, we see very much the similar themes that John is writing to us as he records the very prayer of Jesus There are lots of things you could note here. He talks about eternal life in those verses, as he does in the first five verses here. It's a central theme to him. He talks about this life being manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. That's who he's listening to as he is there together with Jesus in the upper room as Jesus is praying before the Father. But there are two points I want to highlight uh, that I think are very helpful for us this morning. He talks in these verses in 1 John 1 of the fellowship that exists between the members of the Trinity. He mentions only here the Father and the Son, but the rest of the Bible tells us that God is our triune God. And so John tells us that there is a a fellowship, another word that we use similar is communion, a relationship that is lived out between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now these, again, for us are hard to grasp, these mysteries of what the Trinity is. But one of the things we can say is that the Trinity is a a fellowship and a communion between the, the persons of the Godhead, the Father distinct from the Son and the Spirit and each distinct from the other, and yet dwell in perfect fellowship and community together. What John is saying in chapter 1 of 1 John is that there is that fellowship that exists by the nature of who God is. That speaks, for instance, to people who like to say, as I've heard recently, that God made Adam and Eve and the world because he was simply lonely. We've talked about this before. He wasn't lonely. 
He exists within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a perfect, satisfying, no need for anything else communion with each person of the Trinity. And the remarkable thing here, and this is the second point, is that what John says in 1 John 1 is that we are now going to be, through Christ, welcomed into that fellowship. That is beyond my ability to understand or to express or explain to you here this morning. I don't fully grasp, to be very honest with you, what that means. But I think as we study John 17, we'll understand more of it. Because if you look further in John 17, and it's beyond our focus this morning, you will see that this is exactly what Jesus prays for. The language of I and you, you and me, you and them, which is going to be towards the end of the prayer directed to us who will believe because of the disciples' witness. Jesus is actually fleshing that out. What does it mean for the Father by the Spirit to dwell within us and to us have, have a partnership or a sharing in the fellowship that exists between the Father and Son and Spirit by the very nature that he is God, triune God. That's an amazing thought, but I want to give you some anticipation that as we progress through this prayer, that's kind of where we end up. That's what he prays for. And remember, this is a prayer of a righteous man, the most righteous man, fervent and effectual. We actually are now in communion with God through the work of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and the more we grasp that each day as we live from day to day, the more we will live in the power of the Spirit and of Christ who lives by that Spirit within us. So that's kind of where we're going, what we're looking at this morning, this idea of where John is leading us, Jesus is leading us in this prayer before we look at the verses that have to do with glory, that's really our focus this morning, that the Son may glorify the Father, I want to note the context, and the words of context are really in the very beginning of the prayer. Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. What's he referring to there? Jesus is most likely, as I've already noted, praying this prayer in the upper room with his disciples. Remember the Passover feast? He's already shared the meal together. He's taught them all throughout these chapters, really 13, 14, 15, 16. And now it seems that the whole of it comes to an end with this prayer that he prays in front of them. And they hear it. And in God's mercy, they write it down. And what we have is that prayer, those precious words of our Savior. But what is he referring to? Of course, he's referring to the whole reason that he came his whole earthly life, his whole ministry was coming to this critical moment, this hour. It is the most important hour in all of history. I'm reminded of the wedding yesterday with Dan and Ashley as they came up and they stood before me and before all of those who were gathered, as all couples do when they enter into marriage. They set a date a while back, uh, I think more than a year, maybe a little less than a year ago, and they were waiting day by day by day for the hour to come. And I think I even said to them, as I stood looking at them, both of them beautifully dressed and attired, a bride adorned for her husband, a husband uh, fitted for his bride, as they stood there before me, I said to them, well, the day, 
I might have said, the hour has finally come. It's finally come. They've waited so long, and now they stand before God and witnesses and take their vows and are joined together as husband and wife. But while Dan and Ashley were waiting for a year or so, Jesus is referring to something that goes back far, far beyond that, back to eternity past. The hour that he's referring to here was an hour that was in view from the very, before the very foundation of the world in the secret counsels of the Most High Triune God, in the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that a people would be saved, that a Son would be given, that a Spirit would apply the work of the Son to those whom the Father has chosen. All of that, that hour, was determined in eternity past. So this is what Jesus is saying in this phrase, the day and hour for which he had come is now upon him. It is at hand. And we know that because of where he is, of everything that he's just done in the Passover celebration, of everything that will happen in the following chapters. What is in view here is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the hour to which he refers, the event which was determined before the foundation of the world it was now come upon him. And that's important. That context is important because everything Jesus says has a view to the cross. Everything that he says here about glorifying the Father, about himself being glorified, that the Father would be glorified, everything has to do with that moment and that place at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so three things that we look at, look at this morning as we consider just the theme of glory in these verses. We're going to come back the next time to this verse 3, especially this idea of what eternal life is. But here we have before us first the glory of the triune God. You know, that's really in the background here, the idea that God possesses a glory within himself among the persons of the Godhead, each sharing equally in that glory. There is no distinction between them. All are glorious in who they are. What is the glory of God as you think of that? It wasn't long ago that we were referring to something like this or in, in this context. The Hebrew word for glory does mean a, a weightiness and a heaviness. It's best understood as the sort of weight of his character and attributes that God is substantive. We would say, you know, that God has substance and weight to him because of the attributes that he possesses by nature in his being and how those attributes are spoken of in the word. They, they give to God a weightiness. He is not to be trifled with. All of those things are part of this sort of background of his glory. It was displayed in the Old Testament, as you may remember, through a visible expression of that, a cloud that appeared that protected the people that he was leading with that cloud. And sometimes it would go behind them to sort of block the view of the people from those who were pursuing them. This Shekinah glory that we see coming upon the tabernacle as the Lord's presence settles upon the place that he commanded the people uh, to offer sacrifice. Later in the temple, Solomon prays, the same sort of Shekinah glory descends. And so you have the sense of this weightiness of a cloud. We don't think of clouds that way, but I want you to think of it this way now. The weightiness of a cloud descending upon a building, if you were, if you will. 
That, that weightiness is what his glory is, but it really refers to his attributes, who he is in his being. Think of Moses, his great desire in Exodus 33. You remember his great question, bold as it was, after the people had sinned with a calf that they had made, pretending that to be the God who had led them out of Egypt. Remember, he's on the mountain with the Lord, and he says, show me your glory. Show me the, the essence of who you are, the weightiness of who you are. Moses had already seen it in many, many ways, the burning bush, so many other places. But he says to God, he's still missing something. And he says, I want to see your glory. And you remember the Lord's response. He puts him in a cleft of the rock. He says, you can't see my face lest you die. No man may see me unless he die. He makes them stand, he protects them, that's what he's doing, protecting Moses as he puts them there. He passes by him, and as he passes by him, his glory is revealed in these words. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see, that's his glory. Now, as you think about what he said... It's aimed, isn't it? It's, it's really looking forward to what God will do in the cross of Jesus Christ as he will, through that cross, show mercy and grace to whom he chooses to show mercy and grace. His glory was revealed to Moses. We don't know exactly what Moses said. The scripture says the back part of God passed. He saw that. I don't know what that means. Nobody really does. But what Moses need to understand, needed to understand was that God in his sovereignty, showing mercy and grace to whom he wills, is the essence of who he is in the fullness of his character. That's his glory. Or we can think, as you think of this word glory, the very words of John the Apostle, the one who writes this very gospel early in chapter 1 and the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh, took on human flesh, joined together inseparably forever with his divine nature, became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John knew that in Jesus was God himself, that he is the glory of the Godhead, if you will, come in human form. Now, many commentators believe, and it may very well be a reference to what James and John and Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember as the, the veil of his flesh was, if you will, peeled back a strange image to us. But you remember he shone as the brightness of the sun itself. They were blinded because of it. That, again, is a reflection of the, the purity and the, the perfection of his nature. That was his glory revealed. But, but I think John has more in mind when he says, we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I think he's referring as well to the teachings of Jesus, that the crowds marveled when they heard him as he taught unlike any other man who taught before. The, certainly the works of Jesus as he healed the sick, as he, as he uh, raised the dead, those are the attributes and the characteristics of God himself revealed in human flesh. That's what John means. That's a glory that he possesses. And so what we're noting here 
it's really by way of introduction to the whole of this section, is that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, alone possesses a glory and a weightiness of character borne out in his attributes that only he himself possesses. This is his glory, his holiness, majesty, beauty, mercy, love, justice, all of the attributes of God together, this weightiness of who God is, is what's in view here as Jesus is praying to the Father. So he's praying with this sense and awareness and knowledge that he and the Father together possess this glory. It is theirs by nature as opposed to what is ours by our union with Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing, just just to understand what this glory is and what Jesus is really aiming at. Now, the next two points, very quickly, I really have borrowed from uh, a man I've uh, learned a lot from over the years. Terry Johnson is a PCA pastor in Georgia. He's a wonderful expositor of God's word. But, but he divided these next two things in ways I can't improve upon. So I'm really borrowing this from him. The first is a glory that is recognized is what Jesus is after here. You see that in the verses When he says, Father, the hour has come, there's the context, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that you have given to him. This prayer for Jesus or from Jesus, as he prays that he would be glorified and note here so that in turn, the father would be glorified is a prayer that the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be recognized and seen. So there's something here that's very important. In his humanity, despite the transfiguration, in his humanity, the glory of God was veiled, veiled in human flesh, as it were. His prayer now is that in this hour, the glory of God would be recognized and seen by all. It is time, Jesus says, this hour has come that the glory of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, would be seen and borne witness to by many. That's his desire. That is his prayer, to glorify the Father you know, this idea of glorifying God is, is sort of Christianese. We talk about it all the time. We say it probably not really understanding all the time what we mean. But what does it mean that God would be glorified in our lives? And how important is that? Well, for Jesus, it is critically important that in the work that he is about to do in obedience to the Father, that the glory of the Father would be manifested for all to see. But this idea of manifesting or glorifying God is very central to the Bible. That's why I had read the passage from Daniel. You may wonder, why do we choose these passages? I want you to understand how important it is that God receive glory and that he be glorified in everything that we do. You know the context. You don't have to turn to Daniel 5 again. But Daniel is now talking to the son of Nebuchadnezzar, who knew the story of his father, knew the story of the humbling of his father, that he was made to dwell for those years as a wild animal among the animals of the forest. And Belshazzar, here now, 
is one who stands as witness to what happened to his father. And Daniel's point to him is very clear. You did not learn by the example of your father. You have walked in his ways. You have refused to humble yourself. You have violated everything regarding the the very things of the temple. You have drunk uh, from them. You have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, who are no gods at all but mere idols. And then he says this, But the God in whose hand is your very breath and whose are all of your ways, you have not honored. Now you can use a different word there. You have not glorified. And he's judged. He's judged severely because of that. One commentator I read said, and I I believe this, this is true, and that's why I'm mentioning it. He said, you know, the, the fundamental sin of all of mankind is that they refuse to give glory to God. They refuse to glorify the God who has made them, who holds the breath in their hands, and in whose hands are all the ways, their ways. They have not honored him. To not honor him, to not glorify him, means to not acknowledge him as he is. It means a failure to see him as the God who is and who has revealed himself. Romans 1 makes the point very clearly. That this is the chief sin of mankind. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, Jesus' prayer in the midst of a world that has never glorified God as a world created by him is asking that through the work of the Son, appointed to the Son by the Father from eternity past, that the Father through that work would be glorified, that his glory would be revealed. Notice that even again in his prayer that he, Jesus, might be glorified in this work, it is to an end and an aim that the Father would receive all glory. That's why the Reformers said what they said in all things as they looked at the work of Christ, sole Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And so the question would follow naturally, how will that glory be revealed in the work of the Son on the cross? Well, the Bible gives us many answers to that. The enemies of mankind, of Christ himself, of God, will be destroyed at the cross. He will make, according to Colossians, a mockery of the devil and of all the enemies of Christ and his people. Death itself will be destroyed at the cross as Jesus dies a death for his people that his people might know only life. Salvation will be secured at the cross through the shedding of the blood of Christ, redeemed not by gold or silver or precious stones, but by the precious blood of Jesus. Justice and mercy will meet and be displayed at the cross in a way that nowhere else is it displayed so beautifully and so glorifies the Father. A love for sinners 
rebels against God, Romans 5 and other passages that we've read, a love for sinners will be so clearly displayed at the cross that there can only be to the Father a glory displayed. And that's what Jesus is praying for. He is praying that God will indeed do this. And notice in verse 4 how he speaks. He speaks as if the work is already done. I have already, he says, I have already done the work. The work is already done, already accomplished in this verse. It's already accomplished, the work that you gave me to do. It wasn't, but it was. The sun setting his face so determinedly against or to Jerusalem and the work that he has done or was given to do. And then the words, of course, we can't ignore on the cross itself. Those words, one word in the Greek, it is finished. The whole of the work that God gave the Son to do, it's finished, it's done. And through it, the prayers of the Son to the Father are answered. The glory of Christ, the glory of God are displayed for the world to see. I hope that as you sit here this morning, you have come to see the glory of God the Father in the work of God the Son on the cross. I pray that by his spirit that you have come to understand the glory of the God who is and what he has accomplished in Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me. Thirdly and finally, there is a prayer, as Johnson says, of glory that is to be restored. Now, this is a little bit different, as you might expect. This is a conversation that we are witnessing in these verses between God the Father and God the Son. So we talked about last time, who's praying for me, right? It's Jesus is praying as both fully human and fully divine. The emphasis clearly here is on God the Eternal Son praying to God the Father and asking that the glory that they have enjoyed before all of this would be restored to him. This is equally a great desire of Jesus in this prayer. To understand it, we have to look at a lot of places, but suffice this morning just to remind ourselves of what is said of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. As again, Paul writes that we are to have a mind within ourselves that is also ours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe what Jesus did, how he humbled himself and made himself obedient even to the point of death on the cross, how he took on our human nature and joined it forever to his divine nature so that he, distinct among all who have ever lived, would be the God-man now before the Father in glory with a glorified body. But it's the beginning of this that I think lends some clarity to these words. He was, Paul writes, in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. That passage has been long debated. What does it mean when Jesus empties himself? Most, I believe, reformers who, uh, and commentators who understand this, in my opinion, correctly, I agreeing with them, they not with me, is to see it as a uh, sort of a picture of the glory that he laid aside. 
if you think of the union of a humanity with a divinity and the glory of that divinity, it was veiled in human flesh. What Jesus is praying for is he longs for that glory that is rightfully his, that was never taken away from him so that he became less than God, but that he didn't enjoy in its fullness. Think of how people treated him. Did they treat him as the eternal son of God? No. They mocked him. They were cruel to him. They spat upon him. They crucified him, the Lord of glory. But he's praying here for that original, innate, belonging to him by nature, that glory to be restored And all you have to do is read to the end of Philippians chapter 2, that section 5 through 11. Just read verses 9, 10, and 11. God therefore highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's the answer to his prayer the prayer of a righteous man, effectual and fervent. God answered it when he exalted Christ in the resurrection and ascension. That's the reference we'll talk about next time of this authority that he has as king of a kingdom to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given to him. That's all because of the exaltation of Christ to God's right hand as the faithful servant who has faithfully followed everything the father had given him to do he was exalted and the glory that he possessed and the revelation of that glory was given to him as all the world will acknowledge him that is still to come brothers and sisters when he appears with the clouds from glory and in glory the whole world will acknowledge that this one is indeed the glorious son of god And that's what he prays, and that's what God has done in answering that prayer. It's the aim of all redemptive history, and it is indeed a glorious thing. Well, that's the beginning of his prayer. There's much more about these verses that we'll talk about, but it has to do with his glory and the wonderful display of that glory. There there are really two things that I want to highlight here as we come to the end of our study this morning. Uh, One of them, the first one, really is more looking forward, if you will. And that is what we referred to earlier as our communion with God. I do want you to anticipate and look forward to, as you learn with me together, what this communion that exists between the triune God, the persons of the Godhead, that, that, that our redemption, our salvation... One of the great aims of that salvation is to welcome sinners redeemed by the blood of Christ into that fellowship and communion that has only always existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I want you to anticipate with joy that that when Jesus prays as he does, that the Father would be in us as the Father and the Son are in one another, that 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 is a a marvelous, marvelous, beyond our comprehension, revelation that God has given to us. And, And it all starts in this section because that is part of how this will all be worked out and answered 
as Jesus prays, is that a people now, won by the Son for the glory of the Father, will enter into, have entered into already, that glorious communion and fellowship with God. I pray that God would impress that upon us as we continue uh, in our study of this book. But the second is really to the point of this passage. And that is, and I believe that this really is a pattern for our lives and a pattern for our prayer life as well. Now, one of the things we haven't emphasized enough, but we will, is that what Jesus prays for here is really a pattern for us to follow. We, we have the Lord's Prayer, right? Do, do you know the similarities between the Lord's Prayer and this prayer, which is really the Lord's Prayer, his prayer to the Father? Do you know the very first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Of course you do. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The very prayer of Jesus, beginning as it does, with an aim to the glory of his Father, is the very thing he taught us when his disciples said, teach us how to pray. He said, this is how you pray. He could have said, well, just listen to me and watch me. Because what is it on my heart, my desire, my, my preeminent, my, my fullest expression of my desire? What is it? Is that my Father would be glorified. So pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, glory be to your name. May your glory be displayed in this world. That's what we're praying, right? May, may your glory and power, the beauty that is you, may it be displayed in everything that I do. That's our prayer. I pray this morning that it's your prayer. That you pray with a desire, not, not merely that God would meet your needs, which he will, he's promised to. Not merely that he will heal this disease, which we should pray for and do pray for. But that in everything, his glory would be manifested and seen in our lives and in this world. Does the glory of God so possess you that it is the one single aim of your prayer life first? of your prayer life. But the second point is it needs as well to be the aim and focus of your life. As we teach our children our catechism, most of them know the first question and answer. What is the chief end of man? Why do you live? Why are you here? Why do you exist? Why do you possess life? What is your purpose? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why Jesus begins his prayer the way he does, because it's the chief end of all mankind that God would receive glory and be glorified in this world and in our lives. Paul puts it this way, whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. Now, that's very important because you know what he's saying there, right? He's going to the very least, most common things in our lives. And he says, when you take a bite of food, when you drink a cup of water, you are to do that simple, basic thing to the glory of God. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If it's true that you are to do that basic stuff to the glory of God, how much more true is it? 
that the bigger decisions, choices of your life would be done and entered into with an aim for God's glory. And so it's an argument from the least or the lesser to the greater. If it's true of the lesser, it is equally even more true of the greater. Is that how we're living our lives? That we would do all things to God's glory, every decision, every thought, everything that we do, every choice that we make would be preempted, would be uh, previewed or, or said beforehand, Lord, may this be in your sovereign wisdom to the glory of your name. You know, but there's even more here. And you have to see what is more here. This is not mere mechanical stuff. This is matter of the heart. This is Jesus saying everything, everything to the glory of God. Well, do you really mean everything, Pastor? Yeah, I I mean everything. Remember the context. He's about to suffer the cruelest death a man could ever know. And so it means that in the midst of all of our suffering, in the midst of everything, we would check off and say, not what I asked for, not what I wanted. In the midst of all of the unfair things that happen to us in our lives, in the midst of everything, we are to be consumed by a desire for the glory of God. Even in this, Lord, whatever this suffering is in your life right now, and believe me, I know the suffering of this life. I'm going through it now. My family's going through it. Your family's going through it. We're all going through it. All the sufferings of this life, we know the depth of them. We're tired. We're weary. But are we asking in the midst of it that God would, through it all, bring glory to himself? This suffering Savior, about to suffer this cruel death, prayed that God's glory would be manifested. I was struck by the words of the hymn we sang when we opened. Though great distress my soul befell, my God did all things well. That is the language of someone who wants God to be glorified in everything. Let us pray. Our Father, may your glory and the display of that glory and the glory of your Son and of the Spirit be paramount in our hearts and minds, in every decision, every thought, every action, every word we speak. We would only want everything to be to the glory of our great God and Father, And we would ask it in the precious name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who while he was here on earth, sought only the glory of his Father. May it be so of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.